Lord, I just want to thank you that we could spend time in your word and allow you, Lord, to teach us and instruct us and to challenge us and equip us. Lord, you told us that the things that were written here were written, Lord, for our warning. They were written to challenge us that we shouldn't lust after the things that the nation lusted after, but also, Lord, that all scripture, Lord, is given to challenge us, to teach us, to warn us, to exhort us, to equip us, Lord, to correct us. And I pray, Lord, tonight that you would profoundly speak to every one of us, Lord. That tonight would be such a beautiful and meaningful night. And Lord, that your word would have such deep and perfect meaning. Lord, that you would unpack it in a way, Lord, that we could grab a hold of it. Lord, not just for information, but for transformation. And that tonight, Lord, your word would just so impact us that we would take the warnings that are necessary here. So, Lord, we commit it to you. Immerse me in your Holy Spirit, Lord. Come upon me that, Lord, that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do and speak fluent us now. Every one of us speak into our lives, speak into our situations. And, Lord, hedge off those areas, Lord, where we're nearer to the edge than we even think we are. So, Lord, please have your way tonight, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight, as I would like any night, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your authority. I guess I've got a couple crazy cousins. I didn't even know they existed until I was uh, told rep- the reputation preceded them. I'm, I'm not much for knowing much of my family, but, uh, but I guess my mother has a brother who has a couple crazy kids that lived up in Wisconsin. And uh, Wisconsin is the state above Illinois where Chicago is. And uh, they were kind of known as sort of the crazy guys. I knew one guy is the guy with the titanium arm. That's how I was kind of introduced. I never actually really met them. Uh, but that was kind of, if I ever were to meet them, that would be the first thing I'd say. So tell me about your arm. And, and it comes from a single story. The story is that these boys were, um, they had bought a pickup truck they were kind of in their late teens, and they kind of felt invincible as as teen boys do. And they had been, you know, seeing all those truck commercials, you know, where everything is kind of like you jump over this and you land in that and built tough and meant to stay that way. And they were kind of like that. So they would just, you know, if they could see an opportunity to, to show off that truck, man, they were going to go for it. Now, understand, I'm from Chicago. I am the farthest thing from like a, yeah, get me a pickup drug kind of guy there is, at least as far as I knew. And so these guys were from another world. Well, the story kind of goes, as at least I'm told it, that these guys had been driving through things, puddles and jumping ravines and doing all the kinds of things guys do in their four by fours. And and they were driving on one of those country roads up in Wisconsin, and a truck that was in front of them was sort of a truck that had a couple big cardboard boxes, and one of the cardboard boxes fell off the truck. And it's classic style of these guys. I don't even know what their names are. I just know them as Titanium Arm and Sidekick. And uh, they do what, what any guys would do at a moment like that. They just gun it. They just step on the accelerator to get that thing going as fast as they can, and they're going to plow through this giant box, and it's just cardboard's going to fly everywhere, and they're going to scream and wave their hats or whatever guys do at moments like that that drive vehicles like that. And they go and they pick up the speed, and they're kind of heading downhill, and they hit this thing, and boom! Inside the box was a drill press. 
Now, if you don't know what a drill press is, imagine consolidating a lorry into something that stands upright that you kind of roll down and kind of drills through like really, really big, sharp metal. So we're really kind of talking about something roughly the weight of a, com- of a compact lorry. That's kind of the idea here. So when they hit that thing, completely unaware that there was anything in the box, well, it ripped the entire front axle off the truck. So it took the wheels and the thing that held the wheels and all that, just ripped it right off the truck and sent them both right out through the window, for which then, of course, one of my brilliant uh, cousins would then land on his elbow and shatter his arm, from which he would get the term titanium arm. Now, there's a moral to this story, and that is that they had driven through so many things. They had driven over so many things. The last thing in their mind Well, to be honest, from the little I hear, there wasn't much going on there anyways. But the last thing on their mind was the idea that maybe there is something that is going to define the rest of my life. Apparently, that particular titanium armed boy was actually being scouted and actually being recruited for American football. And so he had a whole career in front of him. I mean, we're talking about you know, seven digits. The guy really just thought he was on top of the world. And in one moment, his entire world changed forever. There was no way he was going to go back into what he was doing. And it was like one of those moments that seemed for the moment, anything inside of us driving slower than that vehicle was, would say, hmm, maybe we should take a second look at what we're doing here. But when you get used to driving through things and the truck doesn't even slow down, of course, why in the world would this be any different? And we live life a lot like that. Of all of the falls in all of Scripture, outside of perhaps Adam and Eve, none is more famous than 2 Samuel chapter 11. Nothing is more definitive, iconic in the grown-up life of David in the mind of most people than this chapter. And like any fall, we somehow, if we're the person falling, assume we were walking somewhere and all of a sudden found ourselves off the edge of the cliff. But I've learned this. You can't fall off the cliff if you're not near it. And if we look back in honesty, every major failure of our lives since walking with the Lord can easily be a dance, a set of small steps, centimeters at a time, Because every little step we take doesn't seem so dangerous because it's just a little step. And the moment you put the word just in, you know you're in trouble. That's just a little drink. It's just a little extra look. It's just a little. But the fact that you're saying just, the question is, who are you saying just to? The Bible tells us that a conscience can be pure, but a conscience can also be polluted. And a conscience can even be seared like with a hot iron. But we don't start out seared. 
We start out pure in our conscience. And as we go from that, we add a little just, and we add a little just, and if you will, a just is the cohesive element that allows us to satiate the voice of our conscience so we don't hear it like we used to. And we inch ourselves, and we inch ourselves, and we inch ourselves to where in the end we find ourselves off the cliff and wonder what in the world happened. When truth be told, our conscience has been telling us every step. David will be forgiven. And he will write about it in Psalms 32 and 51. But David will never be the same. David's life on earth will never be the same. And if I'm to do the math here, David is older than I am. Which I know you're probably thinking, that's really not very old, Pastor Tony. Thank you for thinking that. Uh, I mean, we're probably talking about David in his early to mid-50s. And the reason I say that is David is surrendering to a lust in his 50s. As I look around the room, I'm clearly the oldest person in this room. And if you think, don't worry, there'll be a day when all of this will cool. There will be, but it'll be the day that worms feast. So might I suggest, the issue is never, I'll just get this thing tackled. But we set the boundaries that are necessary and we build the fences that are necessary. We get the accountability that is necessary. And we don't rely on our own strength. Because stronger men than us have fallen. There have been amazing preachers of the gospel for which in some cases I've known personally of hundreds of people who have responded to their ministry who aren't known for the gospel they preached. They're known for the public failure morally. And truth be told, eternally it doesn't disqualify the work they've done or that the Lord has done through them. But here on earth, some people will never look at them the same. And that is really really sad. Now, our pretext in our last chapter, a chapter, if you will, completely cloaked with the concept of accountability. The king of Ammon, King Nechash, dies. His son Hanun is taken his place. And David sends comforters for which the uh, princes of the area of Ammon decide that these guys are actually probably there as spies and not really there for the honest intent of comforting. So they shave half their beards and they tailor half their clothes till they're running around bare at the buttocks. For which then uh, they come back, David meets them in their shame and then has them sent to uh, Jericho. He meets them in Jericho and then tells them, wait until your beards have grown and for goodness sakes, put some clothes on. And with that, Ammon realizes at that point they've made themselves detestable in the sight of Israel. So they hire some Syrians, some mercenaries, 33,000 men from Ishtob, uh, from Ma'aka, from Zobah, from Bedrechov. And now they have these two places. You have this Ammonite city and you have these 33,000 hired mercenaries hiding in the back bushes, if you will. And Joab comes. He's the commander of David's army. 
And Joab surmises the situation. He's there with his brother Abishai. And they look and they realize that the battle is in front of them and behind them. So they decide to divide forces. Joab, uh, whose name again, I remind you, means Father God, looks at what's behind and he says, I'll take care of what's behind us. That, by the way, is the 33,000 hired mercenaries. Those are probably your most, uh, if you will, experienced uh, soldiers. And Joab is the commander of the army. He's going to take them on hard and heavy. Uh, and he says to Abishai, his little brother, okay, it's your turn. I'm going to have you. And his name means the father's gift. And he says, I'm going to have you take on the place in front of us. That's the Ammonites. Ultimately, that will be a great victory for both, but we see a great accountability in that. Look at the, we recognize the battle is behind us, but it is also in front of us. The battle to not fall backwards into what we used to be, but also the battle to step forward and not stay even where we are today. Because let's face it, tomorrow, today is history. And it is not moving forward unless we take steps each day in that sense. And so there needs to be that accountability in both places. That place that looks and says, someone that loves you enough to say, hey, it looks like you're kind of going backwards here. You're looking less like Jesus and you're looking more like the world. And there are so many places we can go where, the, to be honest, once we've come to Christ, it's just not about becoming like Jesus. It's like now let's talk about the freedoms that we have in Christ and let's go out and get drunk or ish so we're not totally drunk, so we're not really kind of blowing what Scripture says and let's, let's be a little bit less, less careful about where we are at sexually. And you realize all of those things are just cliffs. And there's got to be someone that loves you to say, you know, none of this makes you look more like Jesus. None of this draws you closer to Jesus. But there's also... Not just the, I don't want you falling back, but let's make sure we're taking steps forward. So what happens? The Ammonites realize they're in trouble. The Syrians have been defeated and the, Syrian, the Syrians regather under king of the desert. He brings, if you will, his commander, Shavach. And Shavach then comes and joins the fight. And as he joins the fight, so does David. And David jumps in now. And that's the end of the Syrians' intervention. The Syrians have been so defeated, they will never jump in under these circumstances again. And so with that then, all the kings who had been under the thumb of King Adadezer now seek to make peace with David. But see, there's something we don't recognize here, and that is when a battle transpires 2,000 years ago, you fight until the rainy season, and then everyone takes a break. So what happens is we fight until like October, and then it gets cold and it gets rainy. And at that point, I mean, who really wants to shoot an arrow in the rain? And who really wants to try to drive a chariot in that kind of weather? So I'll tell you what, hey, you guys have a nice Christmas. Enjoy yourselves. Most likely kill you in the spring. And then they separate. And so as they separate, there is this period of time where you sort of reassess. And then when the spring comes, we go back into it and we engage in the battle. And that's where we're at now in Second Samuel chapter 11. And it says this in verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when the kings go to battle that David sent Joab. Does it get you someplace already? It is important to note here that God made special note that it wasn't just spring and it wasn't just battle time, but who is supposed to lead the battle and that's supposed to be the king. And we're all aware of the fact that David's the king. So God says this is the time when kings go to battle, but David's not going to battle. Now, I want to warn you, if you think that life is a fight, and when you're there walking with Christ, sharing Jesus, sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is going to be a battle with lost souls out there in the world, 
Don't you for a second assume that if you bench yourself, the fight stops. It's just a different fight. The thing I've learned between American football and real life is you get tackled on the bench in real life too. Somewhere down the line, it doesn't matter where you pull yourself because sooner or later, you're still going to be targeted by someone. And the reason I say that is, is that David will always be safer on the battlefield with the Lord than he ever will be in the, in the palaces of comfort by himself. And if you really have a desire, and I do, to walk with the Lord and not fail like this, not be known as the failure, the guy who blew it, well, then one of the things is, it's, you know, you think, well, but the bullets are whizzing and the arrows are flying and the, and, you know, and the, 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 the way that people are looking at me or I'm going to have to deal with those looks again and those condescending stares when I start sharing Jesus with someone. But that environment demands for us to step up and walk with Jesus. We know that. We can't take the day off there. We sit at home by ourselves while no one's looking and who knows what could happen. With that in mind, it tells us it was the time when the kings were to go out to battle, but David wasn't going. But David instead sent his, sent his commander and his servants with him and all Israel. All Israel tells me that if a guy could fight, he's out there. The only guy that's not out there fighting is the guy from which they sang, David has slain his tens of thousands. He's the guy you really want in the battle, Karen. And it says, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. Rabbah, by the way, for what it's worth, is the capital city of the Ammonites located east of the Jordan. And its name means, Rabbah means great or huge. But David remained at Jerusalem. I want you to realize that the only person in this chapter starting that is actually going to not have victory is David. Even Uriah, who will die, spoiler alert, he will still die victorious. I mean, I read his story here, and I'd rather be him than David in this chapter. And he dies. The question is, can we have that much disdain for sin that we could say that honestly? That I'd rather be Uriah than than David in this chapter. So then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed. Now, evening is basically from noon to six because then it turns into night. So David's taking a nap in the afternoon. We don't read that David is ill. We don't read that David is injured. We don't read that David is on some form of reserve because of some disability. The only thing that David has done at this point is predisposed himself to fall. David arose from his bed and he walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Find out how many people in Scripture God calls beautiful, and then find out how many God calls very beautiful. And already David is in a dangerous position. David is not alone. David has servants. We're going to see that in a moment. But a servant's a yes man. A servant cannot, by virtue of death, if you will, cannot backtalk the king. And David is walking at this point and he looks out of, over his kingdom and he sees a woman bathing and, and she's, there's, God says, by the way, as far as it's concerned, this girl was a knockout. She was really beautiful. But verse 3 says, David sent 
and inquired about the woman. Now immediately you realize David is not doing this alone. At this particular moment, somebody else is being dragged into the sin. Now, for what it's worth, and it's important to recognize, James tells us this in James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. God doesn't tempt, and he's not tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one of us is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. When desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it fully grows up, well, it tells us brings forth death. And then he doesn't stop there. He says, don't be deceived, beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, from coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shadow of turning or variation. If God is not giving it to you, and every good gift comes from God, then it's not a good gift if you get it. And if God's not giving it, and you're asking, it must not be good. Now, that doesn't mean it couldn't be good later. But if I were to give my 13-year-old a nail gun, everyone who knows her here knows that would be a terrible lapse of judgment. Would she know how to use it? Rather quickly. Would some of us be nailed to the floor or wall? Fairly likely. But she at her age, and with the discernment she has at the moment, would not be a good thing. But who knows? A couple of years from now, she may just decide she really loves roofing and she really wants to you know, start roofing and she could really be a, a real winner with that nail gun. I don't know, but what's for sure now is now's a bad idea. And what James tells us in James 1, and I love the book of James. One of the reasons is James is one of those guys that's clearly no yes man. He's not going to play into you and just be like, hey, let's just be buddies and that kind of thing. He's like, I'm going to be a real friend and faithful are the wounds of a friend, by the way, versus the kisses of an enemy being deceitful. And he says, look at the whole book of James is this. You want to say that you believe in God? Well, then where's the difference? It's not faith plus works. It's a faith that works. Faith should do something. If you really trust God, it should change you. And he goes, one of those areas is this area of temptation. What are you going to do with it? He goes, don't tell me for a moment God made you do this. He says, a temptation is not a sin. And I know that because we read that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. They can't be. But a temptation is an opportunity to. So a temptation is an opportunity for you to grab a hold of it and then start entertaining it. And there's the idea of being enticed. You start taking this thing and then you start rolling it around in your head. And as you start rolling it around in your head, you start weighing out options, possibilities, playing out the scripts and scenarios. And you're rehearsing the sin at that point. And as you rehearse the sin, we wonder why it is we fall. Well, in our minds, we've been practicing it for quite a while. It almost becomes second nature to the most of us because most of us, is our, most of us, if you will, command central has already been playing the movie in our heads and now we just actually have to fulfill the lines. Back in the text here, David has gone to somebody and he's a king, so he's got people serving him. And he's got to call someone over. 
And as he calls someone over, it tells us he inquired about the woman. He's like, so he's like, psh, 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 who that? And someone said, the fact that it says someone said tells me, to be honest, that this was not even David and one individual, or the Bible would have made clear, and that person said. Someone tells me there is a small consortium or a larger consortium of people, and one of the faces, there's enough of them there, that one face pops up, and it isn't even like anyone knew who that was. Which one of you was that? Shemai? Was that? Hello? Which one of you was that? And just one voice was like, oh, excuse me, but isn't this? And the idea there, there's a group of people here, and nobody says, hey, 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 hey. Yo, yo, let's just stop here. But I wonder how long it's been that David, in this temptation, that David has already been hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit speak to him. Tell him, David, why are you laying on your bed? Aren't you supposed to be out there in battle? How do you feel about resting here while every other armed man is out there fighting and they want you to lead them and you're not leading them? And he takes a walk out there and he takes that look. And you can just hear the Holy Spirit saying to him, don't look again. What are you doing? This is That's not yours, David. Now, when the internal voice of the Holy Spirit stops, uh, you stop listening to. Then God often has this tendency to send somebody on the outside since you're dwelling in the flesh, send somebody in the physical in front of you to to tell you as well. In 1 John chapter 5, it tells us that we are, when we see a brother commit a sin that does not lead to death. And you go, well, what, what sin doesn't lead to death? And if we're dangerous, we think that because we think, well, which ones can I do? Because I don't want to die. Commit a sin. He says, I want you to pray. He goes, but there's sin that leads to death. And when sin leads to death, I'm not saying you should just pray about that. When it's a single sin and it's repented of, the route is closed. The avenue is shut down. And if I were to see somebody commit a sin, and he makes it clear it's a single individual sin, he says, I want you praying. Then you see that sin committed again by the same person. He goes, now it's time for I want you to do something. I want you to be available to me. And I've learned this. It is a lot easier to minister to someone you've been praying for. Have you noticed? It's amazing how when you see someone do something, the last place we want to go is to God with it. And you say, in prayer, Lord, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to go and approach this individual? Or do you want me to stay on my knees? And there are times God's like, not now, not yet. Sometimes God's like, go get him, Tiger. And I've learned both have happened. Here, David's got a consortium of people, and he is at the information gathering section. There's a girl... And he's clearly not listening to the Holy Spirit right now. 
God never said, though, and I want to warn you, God never said this was a guy that loved me sometimes. He will say in the next chapter, through Nathan the prophet, why did you despise my commandments? And you've given the enemy an opportunity to blaspheme. Do those things mean anything to me? I mean, I'm trying to be honest. The idea that what I could do could make somebody who doesn't believe in God give them ammunition and fodder to fan the flames of their already their angst already that exists against God. Does that bother me at all? Does that really infuriate me? Because see, David was a passionate guy. And I'll be honest. So am I. I know that doesn't surprise you, and I know some of you, so are you too. Some of you have your blood runs a little hotter than others. But no one's immune. And David has surrounded himself with people here and they have to give a response. Who is this? And the response is threefold. Look at verse 3 with me. David sent and inquired about the woman and someone said, as if it weren't even important which person it was, said, is this not Bathsheba? And the way it's listed is that every one of these things should be a warning. Then they go, hey, yeah, check it out. Yep, that's a good-looking girl. Her name is. You can say, isn't this the idea that David, the idea of saying, is this not Bathsheba, tells us that it's as if David should know this person. And he tells us three things here, whoever the someone is. The first is her name, Bathsheba. Bat is the feminine for Ben. Ben is the son. Like, for instance, Today, the word is bar. Mitzvah is the word for command. So a son of a command is a bar mitzvah. A girl has a bat mitzvah. And it is the variation of this word here, the bat. means daughter. Shiva is the number seven, which also is the word used for oath. So the first of the three things is her name is daughter of an oath or daughter of a covenant. That should slow you down. It's as if her name is already taken. Okay, step one. Second, the daughter of Eliam. Now, Eliam, for what it's worth, I know from 2 Samuel 23:34. it's easy to remember, 2, 3, 3, 4 is Eliam happens to be the son of a man named Ahithophel. And Ahithophel is David's closest counselor. It's the man who gives him counsel. We ultimately know as a spoiler alert that one of David's sons, Absalom, is going to revolt and he is going to pull in as a counselor Ahithophel. And you wonder, how did Ahithophel wind up joining David's enemy, if you will? Well, it's simple. Look at what happened to his granddaughter in this verse. So first of all, her name is already taken, daughter of a covenant. Second, she's the granddaughter of your chief counselor. Do you really want the guy that gives you advice? Do you really want to take his granddaughter? Third, and if if those two things didn't work, this one better, the wife. It doesn't matter who it is. Wife should have done it. But the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Now, according to 2 Samuel 23, 39, God lists David's mighty men. 
They're the only ones that have a clear shot at David in any given moment, if you will. They were David's personal bodyguards. And of them, there are 37 listed, for which the last of them is Uriah the Hittite in 2 Samuel 23:39. This was David's bodyguard. Who in their, I don't care how fine the girl is, who in their right mind wants to sleep with their bodyguard's wife? But let's be honest, sin does this thing where it makes us insane because we convince ourselves that there's nothing in the box and we'll just drive right through it like we've driven through everything else and there's nothing possible in it. So they say, look it, the girl's name is daughter of a covenant. She's the granddaughter of your primary counselor and she happens to be the wife of your bodyguard. And if David had any common sense at him at this point, he'd say no girl should be worth that at this moment. But I want you to recognize David is already priming himself for this. It tells us, by the way, that David had already had a six pack of wives. And as he had a six pack of wives, including, by the way, if you will, Michal, Saul's daughter, and Abigail, we're familiar with her, the Carmelitess, in Ahimnoam. But then once God gives him the promise of an eternal kingdom, David starts gathering more. And in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 17, God made really clear, when you have a king, there are certain requirements for that king. He is not to be anyone but Jewish. And he's someone that only God can choose. And he cannot amass horses and chariots. He's not to amass gold and silver. And he is not to amass wives, foreign wives specifically, lest they turn his heart away from following the Lord. God knows. And you know what's really sad? Some of you, if not all of you in the room, I know some of you, when we've watched this together, we have watched guys and girls, but guys specifically, that were solid in the Lord and just seemed like they were full on for God and they were passionate about God. And then they met some girl, and I'm not saying the girl is the problem, but they met someone and all that passion gets dished off to something else Instead of it increasing their love for God, they just took all of that and gave it to the girl instead. And you watch them crumble. So David, now ignoring the Holy Spirit, goes, who is this? And they say, hey, let me tell you who it is and who it shouldn't be. Verse 4 says, David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. None of this was ever done privately. Have you noticed that? It is important to note this because it is important to note that when David will say against you and you alone have I sinned, it doesn't mean that David had not sinned against anyone else in regards to practically, but nobody else was willing to tell him it was a sin. He says, but God, you never changed your mind. You never said it wasn't sin. From the very beginning to the very end, you said this was wrong. And David, in his own admission of that, tells us, you know what? You had been telling me the whole time. I just wasn't listening. David sent messengers and he took her and she came to him and he lay with her. But look at the rest of verse 4. For she was cleansed from her impurity and she returned to her house. Now, wait a minute. 
What in the world does it mean that she was cleansed from her impurity? An ironic thing to say, right? Well, in Leviticus chapter 15, it tells us that when a girl has a discharge, and we're talking about sort of the regular thing that comes to visit you every month, ladies, you can thank Eve for that, a discharge of her body's blood. She shall be set apart for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening, and then she's supposed to wash herself. It seems to me fairly likely that the reason that the girl was out on the uh, on the roof wasn't that she was kind of, well, let's face it, every other fighting man was already out fighting. Is she aware of the fact that David's in the palace? I'm just going to give her a bit of the shadow of the doubt here to say, I don't really think so. I mean, why in the world would the king be there? He's supposed to be leading the battle. But if she's had this time of the month, if you will, she's kind of at the end of it all. She's rinsing herself off from that to make herself, if you will, clean. And it is that situation that drives David to see her, if you will, or drives her to stare at her. She's rinsing herself off from that time, which, if you'll pardon me for saying, tells us that she is not predisposed to being impregnated right after such a thing. She tells us there seems to be a little bit more of a surprise to this. And it does seem like it's only once. But we're all aware of the fact once is all you need. And how many times have you ever met anyone that was like, well, I thought I would beat the odds. I mean, come on, one time, what's the possibility here? And we're so cavalier about it. We're just running through a box. We're not willing to look in. And if there was anything inside of us, you'd say, you know, you might want to slow down and not actually hit that thing. Verse 5, and the woman conceived and she sent and told David and said, I'm with child. Now, have you ever thought about how long it would take for her to figure this out? It isn't like, you know, there she was kind of bathing up on the on the roof. This particular one night stand happens with the king. And about, a, you know, a week later, she's like, you know, I should probably pop by a boots and just kind of get an EPT and see if there's a cross in my, you know, on my stick. You know, I mean, truth be told, let's face it. How long does a girl have to really wait and wait it out on your own self? How long does a girl have to wait before she's like, I mean, that's, there's the phase that's like, oh, and then there's the phase of the, uh-oh, and then there's the phase of, oh, really? Could this really be? And then there's the, oh, no, phase. Two months? I mean, how long before she's like, you know, that thing that's coming to visit hasn't visited lately. That's a little weird. But somewhere down the line, and isn't and the reason I say that is put some time here. Put some time in between David's event with this girl and the, the moment where this happens. It isn't like the next day she sort of shows up and goes, Davy. You know, there's a period of time where maybe did David think he got away with it. And what's interesting is when David speaks about this in the Psalms, he says, your hand was heavy on me, if you will, from the very beginning of this. There was no part in this where David was like, wow, that was such a great event. I should do that again. He goes, man, God, you just, you made my life miserable over this thing. And let me just say, God does not want you happy when you're running from him. And this is just not done in a vacuum. Think about how many people David has dragged in that were servants. David may have appeared to be their authority, their leader. And I can't even, you know, I I could have said three years ago, I can't even imagine being in that position. 
What it would be like to have somebody that you respected so much, that clearly had a passion for God, that clearly seemed like they were so gung-ho for God, and then have them give you information that is so weird, that is so contrary to that, that you don't even know what the heck to do with it. Who do you go to and what do you do with this? And how does this change? And, and how does it change my view of you? And then how does it change my view of God? If God's blessing you and look at when the world's going on, but you don't see what's going inside of David. And God is, and the term that David uses is if God was pummeling him. He was taking him outside and beating the heck out of him inside, but you didn't see it. He said, my bones grew old and I, my vitality dried up like the drought of summer. He goes, man, you, when we talk about feeling spiritually dry, this guy's like, I'm like the Sahara at this moment. Do you think David was fun to be around? Hey, remember that guy that used to write all those great songs and David used to be like, shut up about it. I mean, imagine what it's like when a person's that spiritually dry, but trying to still put on that face and lead people. And what would it be like for every one of those servants who are aware of the situation? And there's this inside information with them and they don't even know where to go with it. Do you realize how unbelievably loving it was for God to nail him on it? Because it wasn't just about David at that point, was it? It was about every servant that was involved. Let's face it. For the servants that watched, for the servants that must have known, wouldn't it have appeared to be like a joke after a while? Like this whole thing must be a joke. How could such a person do this? And then just make it like nothing ever happened. It tells us this in Proverbs 28:13, and I pray you take it to heart as I do, that he who covers his sin, or sins plural, will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And now David's stuck. Nobody makes intelligent choices at a moment like this, and certainly David's not going to. I remind you, David hasn't had a problem killing people. God told him he couldn't build a temple because he was a warrior. He was a man of war. He was a man of blood, and he knew that. And that's where David knows how to go with it, and that's where he's going to go with this thing. Now, I'm not trying to arise empathy, if you will, for David, but I'll be honest, a person that is drowning in their sin only wants to survive, and survival mentality is only selfish. And at this point, I think David's just trying to survive. You realize, God nailing David at a moment like this is the one thing that's going to keep David from drowning for good. And David now is in this place where his sin is all around him. And he looks and he goes, what do you do? Now, could you imagine what the, how this story would look different 2,000 years later? Would David have privately taken her to a clinic? Would David have had the child aborted? The leader of God's army? The man after God's own heart? The one that was a man better than Saul? That was a long time ago. Would David have done that? I don't think any of us could be confident he wouldn't. 
He certainly didn't have a problem killing people because he's gonna, you're going to see that the husband's going to get a problem out of this. What David has is a problem and he's trying to figure out a way to solve it without having to come clean. That's what happens at moments like that, right? You're caught in the middle of something like that and you try to figure out what's the least amount of action I need to take to get this thing dealt with. Isn't that kind of what we do? But you're aware of the fact, right? When something becomes gangrenous on you or something becomes cancerous, they get carving and they get cutting, don't they? Because the danger of that gangrene, the danger of that cancer is so severe, they'd rather grab extra tissue than leave some behind. They'd rather whack off your foot than they would to accidentally leave a little bit of gangrene left on you. Because what it does to you when left untreated is it, in essence, kills the rest of the body. And here we are dealing with something like David, if you will. Well, what David's doing is he's trying to figure out how to get this thing dealt with without actually having to amputate anything. What's the least amount of sacrifice necessary? It's as if you have gangrene, and what David's trying to do is he's trying to inject color back in the skin so that no one can see that it's gangrene, but it's still killing him. So the woman conceived. She told David, I'm with child. Verse 6, David's got to bring somebody else into the situation. And it says, then David sent to Joab and he said, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Now, let's just say that she's, we're 2,000 years ago. So she's two months pregnant. Somewhere down the line in the next month, she's going to start showing if she isn't already. And if she's going to start showing now, David has very little time to try to make it look like it isn't his. Now, I remind you, David's a ruddy, good-looking kid. Ruddy means he's reddish. Now, I don't know how many Israelis you've ever seen, but reddish Israelis aren't real common, at least today. They're more olive skin. It's a beautiful color of skin. And the only reason I say is I kind of get the idea David's a little bit of a very, of a different-looking kind of guy. And the reason I said that when this baby's going to come out, I think it's going to be a little bit of a surprise because it's kind of like, oh, where did all that red come from? And the only reason I say that is, is that, but, I, but you know, who thinks in a moment like that, oh, well, you know, that's a risk we got to take. Let's just, let's just get this guy to sleep with his wife. And, and the, the crazy part about this is, is that this man is so noble that everything he does is kind of, in essence, throw David's conscience back in his face. I mean, David is going to make this guy his enemy, and this guy's done nothing to deserve that. If the guy, to be honest, went and slept with his wife, you'd think David would be like, well, I think I got away with this, but God's not going to let him get away that easy. So David sent to Joab, verse 6, I better pick this up. And he says, send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent Uriah, Uriah, to David. And you know, when Uriah come to him, David starts trying to talk small talk. David asked, Joab, asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, and, the, and how the war possible. We have no record of David having any form of conversation with this guy, although he's one of David's mighty men, but we don't know that David's ever sat with him individually. So imagine how awkward this is. This guy shows up at David's place. Everybody else is fighting. All of Israel, the only two people that are able-bodies that aren't fighting are the king and this guy who now comes over 
And he kind of enters into the king's palace, if you will. Now, remember, the servants are ushering him in. They know. David knows the situation at this point. Now, whether they know that she's pregnant or not, we don't know. But it tells us she sent word. So I kind of get the idea somewhere down the line, someone had to tell David. And the moment someone tells David she's pregnant, how long before that starts getting told around the house? You know, you won't believe this. Well, you need to hear this. But then David... He got that girl pregnant, you know, and it's like, imagine this sort of unspoken thing going on in the house, how weird this house must be. And the guy shows up and the only one that doesn't know in the house at the moment is the husband. And he shows up and he kind of sits down in front of David. And this would be, if you'll pardon me for saying, one of the most greatest moments in British cinema, because British cinema does this so well, where two people sit and it's awkward, right? And they kind of look at each other and it's like, so... And you hear it in the background and time kind of presses on. They kind of look at each other. The camera angle kind of falls over to one, putting a knee over another. And they're like, hmm. and they fix their shirt or something. <clears throat> um, how's Joab? Good. He's good. It's good. How are the men? Yeah. They're good. And where, where, I mean, how weird would that moment be? And imagine being this noble guy that has no clue. I mean, I guarantee you, it isn't that Uriah went in that room and went, I have a feeling the king's going to tell me he slept with my wife. I, I, I have a hard time believing that. So imagine he's kind of sitting there, wouldn't you be a few of you were kind of like, you call? Why did you ask me to find out Joab is? Why don't you just ask someone Why don't you ask Joab about Joab? You know, so the fighting is really going on, huh? Yeah, yeah. It's, we're fighting, killing people, and taking land, and it's the time when kings go out to battle. Yeah, how's their king doing? Oh, no, you know, we're firing at him. Weapons, you know, things are flying. People are dying. Okay, well, why don't you go to your house? So which one of you, if your eye goes, yeah, of course. Uh, and he sent me home so I can go and do a little snuggle. So go down to your house, wash your feet, because after all, a woman's going to be near her husband if he's been fighting and killing people and he doesn't wash his feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house and a gift of food from the king followed him. So imagine, so this, and you, you don't have a clue, right? So you're, uh, you leave the king, you're like, okay, that was weird. That was a little awkward. Last thing I thought when I got up this morning is the king was going to call me in to just have a little bit of small talk. Lovely weather we're having, aren't we? Yeah, a little cloudy and cold today. Oh, why don't you go home? And he starts to leave, and behind him, there's like a Vivaldi crew or a DJ with Kenny G, and there's some people with like bottles of wine and cheese and chocolate. And you can imagine how weird would this be for you, right? You kind of look back and you're like, oh, okay. And then it says, but, verse 9, Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord, and he did not go. Now, so imagine David's like, well, probably dealt with that. And then David opens up the door, and there he is sleeping at his door. He's like, ah, what, what are you doing here? Right? And what's so beautiful is Yeriach means God brings to light. Isn't that a perfect name for him? So, 
So when they told David, saying, oh, you know, I didn't go to his house. David said, Yura, did you not come from a journey? Why didn't you go to your house? And Uriah said, and this is, talk about something that's going to sort of punch your conscience. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my Lord Joab, notice he says my Lord Joab versus David there. And my servants of my Lord are encamped in open fields. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? And you can almost see David going, I don't know, I did. And he goes, as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And imagine, this guy's like, how in the world can anyone, how can I sleep with my wife when the ark is out and God is in a tent and the people are out fighting? How in the world can I go and find comfort in a moment like this? And imagine David hearing those words. Would David in a moment like that, and I wonder if at a moment like that, David would be like, are you accusing me? Because you know this, that a guilty conscience is a very easily offended thing. I'm like, oh, well, who do you think you are trying to talk to me like that? And you imagine the guy's just being honest. So he says, I'll tell you what, verse 12. Wait here today also, and tomorrow I'll let you depart. So you remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. David now gets the guy drunk. Imagine he's like, come on, one more, come by. Come on, one more, ah, come on. And it's like this guy is more noble, drunk, than David is sober. When David actually wanted a man of nobility, a mighty man of valor, this guy was a man of valor. It says, At the evening he went to lie down on his bed with his servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Uriah is so trustworthy, David could send the guy's own death letter by his hand. And he could just be confident. You know, this guy is such a straight shooter. He's such a really noble guy. I know he won't even read the letter I send that actually has him killed. And he wrote a letter saying, Set Uriah in the the forefront of the hottest battle. Retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. Now he's got to send this letter to Joab. And imagine the guy is going to give the letter to Joab. Does Joab have the poker face necessary that when he reads this, Uriah is right in front of him. And he looks and goes, hmm, I've got to kill this guy. And, I, and at that moment, what do you think goes on in the heart of Joab about David? David already isn't fighting the battle. David already has lost another battle. And he's dragging Joab into it. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came and fought with Joab. Some of the people of the servants of David fell and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war. Now, Joab, by the way, definitely seems to be kind of a fight club kind of guy. So he doesn't have a problem getting into the hottest part of the battle. But see, what Joab is doing is instead of calling David out, and hear me on this, because this can happen, instead of calling out somebody on their sin, they just use that as a springboard to do their own thing. They're like, well, if you're going to be like that, I can use this as leverage to go and do what I want to do now. And you watch this. It's kind of like its own sick, fleshly blackmail. So he charged the messenger, said, when you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath arises and he says to you, well, why did you approach so near the city that when you fought? Did you, didn't you know that they would shoot from the wall? 
who struck Abimelech, the son of Yerubasheth. Was it not a woman who cast a piece of millstone on him from a wall and he died in the bed? Well, why did you go so near the wall? Then just tell him your servant Uriah is dead also. Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and he came and told David all that Joab sent by him. And the messenger said to David, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate and the archers shot from the wall at your servants. And some of the king's servants are dead. Some. Not just Uriah. And your servant Uriah, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. David said to the messenger, Well, thus you shall say to Joab, Don't let this thing displease you. The sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city. Overthrow it and so encourage him. David now is nonchalant. And understand, the report he got was not just that Uriah is dead, but there's a whole lot of other people that died too as a result of it. They had to get to a place where... Some sure shot was going to nail this guy, so they had to put themselves in harm's way. David ordered Joab, who didn't seem to have a problem going there, to a place where he knew that, well, Yoyah isn't the only person who's going to die from this. As long as he does die, the others, in essence, they're collateral damage. And David now has taken a place where the men he's supposed to be leading and he's supposed to be protecting and he's supposed to be caring for are getting gunned down one after another. Because to be honest, he's too busy, caught in this sin. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say, Don't let this displease you. This is just going to happen. So it is with war. Cheer up, buddy. Verse 26 when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, notice God keeps making mention it's still her husband there. She mourned for her husband, which tells us, by the way, that she really did seem to care. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Literally, the thing that David had done was viewed as evil by God. And here's the thing. From the outside, everything seems like it's been taken care of. It has been covered. But I remind you, Proverbs makes clear, you want to seek to cover your sins, you can't prosper that way. God is not going to let him escape. And you know why God's not going to let David escape? Not just because he's a God of justice, because he loves David. And because he loves those servants. And because he loves Bathsheba enough that he's going to let them know he is a God who deals with these things. Now imagine what would happen. David, I remind you, he's king. If we'll see next week when the prophet comes and deals with him, imagine what would happen if David just went and just made Nathan the enemy. What if what David did is he goes, how dare you try to call me out on this and then had Nathan executed. Could he have done that? He could have. But then God would have had to send someone else. And it would have had to be dealt with sooner or later. Because this thing doesn't please God. Psalm 32, 3 says, and this is David speaking, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. Groaning, groaning all the day long. This moment of pleasure led to at least a year of groaning. For all day your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. It tells us in, in Psalm 51, 
Verse 7, he says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. David's like, at this point, nothing is happy anymore. All the color is sucked out of my life. This whole thing is just gray now. And there's no joy. There's no happiness. I'm trying to put on the, (laughs) things are good. But inside, my whole world is just terrible. My bones are like broken. That's where I'm at now. That's what David was saying. And God could have, if he was just vindictive, said, you earned it, man. Go ahead and die that way. But he didn't. And before we want to cast this stone at David, maybe this isn't our sin, but we all have our cliff edges. And we all can play our games like we are nowhere near the cliff when we dance right at the edge of it. And then we know in the beginning, like anything, that the risk is real. But the more that we dance on that edge, we forget And we drive through another box and we drive through another box. And sooner or later, we're going to hit that one that rips the whole front axle off. Now, look at what if the sin was just being self-consumed and all you do is implode and you are now helpless? What if the sin is hating everyone? What if the sin is violence? What if the sin is sex? What if the sin is you know, is just getting to this place where all you want to do is get wasted. Aren't those the things for many of us that were just the things behind us that need to be dealt with in our accountability? And if we were busy moving forward, we wouldn't find ourselves in a place where we were dealing with the battle the same way. But let's face it, we don't move forward laying on our couches in the afternoon waiting for the next thing to happen. What's sad is David's life will never be the same. He's got about another maybe 10, 20 years before he dies. In that 10, 20 years, I guarantee you, every aspect of David's life is going to be colored by this event. And it's a couple events now, right? I mean, it started with David not going to battle. Well, it started with David gathering wives. And that was an unfortunate part about something like that, like anything of the flesh is the more you feed it, all that happens is the stomach gets bigger, but it never gets full. Does that make sense? You never fill it. It just, the stomach keeps getting bigger and it never gets full. That's why we have to drink more. That's why we have to get more perverted. That's why we have to go and try to make it more what we call freedom. Because the stomach keeps getting bigger, but it never gets full. And David had already started opening those doors and he made himself vulnerable. And he surrounded himself with people who would do his bidding. When Jimmy Swaggart fell, and you may not know who he is, I hope, to be honest, I kind of hope you don't know, but he was a person who led many people to the Lord through a television ministry. He was a preacher of the gospel and the gospel, of course, is still the power of salvation to those who believe. And the word still never returns empty. But it became clear after a period of time that he was going to get nailed. He got nailed because he had guys working for him that would actually go out and find prostitutes. They were on his salary, and that's what they did. I mean, he had guys he could hire, quote-unquote, in the ministry, and that was their job. 
But you know what was so sad? Was how many of those people came to know the Lord, would sit and talk to me and wonder if they were still saved or if they were ever saved because this guy was such a stupid face. But them saying yes to God did not hinge on that man's moral character or failure. And I don't want to disqualify if you've known someone who's done something really stupid. And worse yet, if they've done it and it became a lifestyle for them. It doesn't disqualify the things God's done through them, even if it was in spite of them. So don't disqualify God's work in you just because someone did something like that. But take the warning of what's happened with them and choose not to do so yourself, which includes surround yourself with blockers. Real accountability is like good blockers in American football, or if you will, even in in rugby. I was a receiver. I was the guy who caught the ball and ran. And the safest place to run is around blockers because there are only certain places you can see And the places you can see, even if someone's going to hit you, you know how to brace for it. And sometimes you even know how to play off of that momentum to keep going. You can get past the guy if he's trying to do it. And you can kind of see how he's trying to tackle you. But getting blindsided is another story. Blindsided is that place where you just don't see it coming. And bam! You get hit so hard, the whole world turns black for a moment. And it's those places where real blockers know to run for you. And it's like real friends block your blind side and they say don't you dare open yourself up to that because you know what happens when you jump in that man and it is not a weak thing to stand before men you love or women you love and say need you to help block my blind side in this. Don't let me get to this. But real accountability is someone you submit to, not just burden them with information like David did with these people. Someone's got to be willing to say that's not right. Deal with it. As we go to prayer tonight, this is obviously a stark slap in the face. Welcome to 2.17. But isn't it kind of God to give us this man's failure in front of us so that it doesn't have to be ours? And what if 2.17 was a year of fantastic freedom and victory? And one of the reasons was because tonight. Because tonight we realized how dangerous it is to surround ourselves in the palace of our own comforts with people that won't nail us on these things and say, hey, that's a dangerous place to be and you don't want to be there. I am not going to get that girl for you. There's no way. I am so thankful that God's gifts and callings are irrevocable and God still knows how to restore And he knows how to forgive and he knows how to cleanse. But that doesn't remove the fact that my cousin still has a titanium arm. It looks like an arm still, but his entire life changed because of that moment his skin is healed. I mean, he shot his arm right through his skin. It doesn't, you know, change the fact that now you can see a scar, but for the most part, it looks just like an arm from the outside. But he can tell you when it's going to rain. And he can tell you when he watches football how hard it is to watch American football. 
because he knew that he could have been that guy in there. At least he was convinced he was. I mean, does his arm still work? Sure. Does he still have muscle function and all and mobility? Of course he does. His life's still not the same. And these guys who have fallen, do they still have ministry somewhere? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But they'll never have what they did. And I can't even imagine being a guy like Jimmy Swaggart, who, by the way, he could walk down the street in almost any place in America because his face was plastered all over television. And if somebody were even to look at him, even just because they looked like their Uncle Hal, would there be something inside of him that goes, I wonder if they're looking at me because of that event? I mean, think about it. For the rest of their life, they have to compare that. And regardless of what they're doing now, do we really want that? So I just want to pray with you, and I want you to pray with me. Because, I I mean, I'm a guy with passion, and I'm not saying I'm a guy with passions, and this is... I'm just saying, I I know what it's like to burn hot, and I know how dangerous that could be if if it's left unchecked. And it's like, I never want to do that. For me, it's like I was a fighter, and the last thing I want to do is get in this place where my knuckles are clenched again. And I want guys around me that are going to be like, hey, 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 I see the way you're acting, and that's not a step forward. That looks like the Syrians are trying to make their way in on this. But whatever it is for each of us, what if we never, ever went back there? And we move forward, and we left that dead guy dead like he's supposed to be. Will you pray with me? Lord, we want to start by confessing to you that we are lazy, weak, foolish, self-consumed, self-gratifying people. And without you, we would be terribly lost. We would drown. We'd be so self-destructive. And we beg you for mercy. Keep us from ever overestimating our own personal strength. Keep us from ever thinking somehow we could become an island that is safe in and of itself. And I recognize that I see David so out of fellowship. And though David's out of fellowship, he's surrounding himself with people that will cater to his sin. And he could think that he's okay and he could think he's safe because he's home. And I can see what happens when we pull ourselves out of fellowship and we isolate ourselves and we feel like we're safe because we're home. And all we have to do is turn on the television or all we have to, I mean, it's just the stuff comes to us so easy. The challenges to crawl into the flesh in whatever way it is that just gets us really contemplating and, and focusing on ourselves. And we feel entitled and we feel angry or we feel whatever and we feed this stuff to where in the end, regardless of whatever the sin is, it's still about the fact that we're dragging other people into this horrible black hole that everybody gets hurt that gets near it. And God, I just want to pray for myself. I want to pray for my family. I want to pray for our church family. God, that you would deliver us from that overestimation that puts us someplace where we feel invincible and we can dance on the edge and assume somehow gravity no longer applies to us.
And Lord, I know that as we read the rest of Second Samuel, we will see the fallout from these choices. But these are choices that David's been leaning up to for a while as he's been stalking his house full of gals. But Lord, I want to thank you that you love him way too much to let him just carry on as if nothing happened. You love him so much that you put him in a place of desperation and then you pop that whole thing by bringing a spokesman in. And if, Lord, tonight these words could pop that bubble and expose and even if our own hearts what it is that we've been near or playing with or whatever, Lord, so that somehow we've been numbing ourselves to the conviction of your Holy Spirit. We've been deafening ourselves to the warnings that he's been laying out. And, you, and tonight, Lord, you just come to lovingly slap us in the face and bring us back to sobriety. Then we want to say thank you because we really don't want to be the person that whose life is in essence characterized and symbolized by such a foolish set of choices. Keep us from doing anything, God, that will give the enemy opportunity to blaspheme you. Keep us from doing anything that in its simplest sense displays our distaste and, and despising of your commandments. Jesus, I do want to thank you that you did die on the cross for all of our sins, for every foolish mistake. And Lord, you know this is not about rehashing the past in people's lives. God, thank you that that's been washed. Thank you that it's been forgiven. But Lord, may we take the stark warnings that are before us to not make those choices again, Lord, that, that we wouldn't find ourselves in this place where we're, in essence, our blind side is exposed and we start getting enticed and we, and we entertain those thoughts. Even if those thoughts, the world doesn't seem to call wrong. And we focus on ourselves, and we become so self-consumed that we feel like we have a right to just do nothing with our life. Because even if we're not falling backward, we're not stepping forward. And yet today, Lord, I know you call us to bring people in our life that will love us enough to say no steps back. And let's start, let's start moving forward. And let's start watching you take ground in our lives. And so, Lord, please make a, give us people that will genuinely challenge us in this. That are men so noble. That they wouldn't do what we would want to do at those moments. And so, Lord, please tonight, move us forward as people in genuine and true nobility true ethic, true moral character. People, that it's not a question of whether we're passionate for you, but that with the same amount of energy and the same amount of passion, we would loathe the sin that hurts you and loathe the sin that hurts others that you love. And I know it's easier to hate the sin in someone else than our own. But tonight, give us that place and, and from this point forward for the rest of our lives when we would genuinely hate sin and love you. So we commit ourselves to you in that. And as, Lord, sin gets dealt with even in this room, restore strength, 
joy and gladness, purity and vitality. In Jesus' name, amen.